I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Does anyone notice anything different about my outfit? You've got something on your head. Yeah, not to go fishing, but do you like my hat? An exotic bird. I I love your hat. Love your hat. Can only be described as jaunty, especially in the context of the podcast studio. The hat is outstanding. I've had to put my headphones on creatively (laughs) (laughs) because I'm feeling so envious of your hat. I think you should wear those to ask. Well, (laughs) it could still be arranged. I don't know if they're the right diameter. It could be a promotion for the Fashion (laughs) Unzip podcast. It's a bit Scaparelli, you know. It is. I've put them over my ears, people, now because I did look ridiculous. Well, I have to say that even though we are at the Telegraph and we do have an image to maintain, hats are still not everyday accessories. I'm wearing one in honor of Royal Ascot, the festival of horse racing, champagne, and hats. I have to say, because Emily's American, this is like her doing English national costume. Yes, it's, 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 <laughs> it's to- a total it's novelty for me. I love it. So I'm Emily Cronin, and this is Fashion Unzipped. With me in the studio are Bethan Holt, Charlie Gowans Eglinton, and back after some globe trotting in the name of fashion, Lisa Armstrong. Welcome back, Lisa. Thank you. Later in this episode, we're going to bring you the scoop on the Royal Ascot dress code, for which I'm obviously very well prepared, the starriest attendees, and how much this particularly British event is worth to the economy. But before we get there, we've got lots of other cultural ground to cover, starting with your best excuse to wear a flower crown this summer. On Saturday, a new must-see exhibition opened at London's Victoria and Albert Museum. Frida Kahlo, making herself up, puts the artist's costumes and personal effects on display alongside portraits and original artworks. Although Kahlo is one of the most prominent female artists in history, I think it's fair to say that this show still included some surprises. Lisa, you visited Casa Azul in Mexico City. And what do you make of of what you saw and and what you have gathered about what's going on in the show? I haven't been to the V&A exhibition yet. I'm I'm dying to go. But I think the thing about the Fida Kahlo, from what I've seen in, in the press so far, is that you know, it's a very personal, intimate exhibition. And that's the kind of artist she was. She painted herself um, incessantly. She was kind of the Tracy Emin of her day. Going to her home was incredible because it was as if she had just got up this morning. You could almost see her imprint still on the bed. You know, her paint, her paintbrushes were still in the pots. Uh, all the furniture, the bed where she and Diego slept, the bed where Diego had to go and sleep when he was snoring, I think, and the kitchen where they'd painted lots of their utensils themselves. Um, she's also, she's such a kind of me too kind of artist isn't she because her pain is all out there and everybody mm. can identify with her her her, her travails are seem very um contemporary you know the body image the style the self-creation that the trouble with her you know having the miscarriage and and being very open about it um the the sort of the lesbian affairs the flirtation with politics and you know because the, they had they, they had Trotsky. they Trotsky came to stay with them in Mexico 
Um, he may even have lived with them for a while um, with his wife. Um, There's sort of there's something for everyone there in the in the Frida Kahlo story. She was really a confessional artist, but even knowing everything that we know, everything that she told us, I still found parts of the exhibition, which I know I'm the only one who's actually seen, but bear with me, quite harrowing. The early rooms have her medical corsets and, yes. and some of her prostheses and and uh, you know cases of makeup and prescriptions and pain medication and. And there's even, you know, an excerpt from a note that she wrote to her doctor begging for more Demerol. Um, and apparently he ripped up his prescription pad rather than succumb to, to giving her do, more. Do you, did, you, did seeing all that, her backstory, uh, give you an, a break, greater appreciation of her art? It did. I mean, so the way that the exhibition, the pace of the exhibition is such that you go down like a Majorelle Blue hallway or really a Casa Azul blue hallway and it's it's the early life of Frida you know her family putting everything into context then you get to the room with um with you know the prosthetic leg with the hot pink boot and and all of the medications and the corsets and many of which she painted as a way to to decorate to make something decorative out of her pain then you're funneled through these tiny hallways into this not vast room but the biggest room of the exhibition where you actually see in the center this this huge display of her costumes and then along on the walls alongside them you see portraits of her like photographs and Mm. and paintings wearing the costumes that are in the case in the middle Mm. and it just like by the time we got there I, I I really felt oh my god she overcame all of this to make of herself this artwork Mm. and it, it was incredibly inspiring and and you know, distressing, and you just wonder how she sort of mustered that determination. I find her as a figure really fascinating because I think, especially over the past few years, there has there has been this kind of tendency to, you know, on a very kind of basic, shallow level, to think Frida Kahlo, think Style. for floral headband, mm. you know, think embroidered dress, and um, I, you know, I do wonder how many of those people who kind of have been inspired by that look would know that kind of um, that background to it. I mean, I'm sure plenty do, but it's interesting how she has in a way kind of transcended it. I think it's also it's one thing reading it and another thing being kind of confronted with these things. Mm. And I think the last time I saw kind of a lot of Frida Kahlo's work was uh, the Tate Modern did that big retrospective that was in 2005 actually with pieces from um, Madonna's personal collection <laughs> yeah. yeah and yeah. you know that was a huge collection it was an amazing exhibition but without the context of this I think it, it probably was lacking something and I think being able to see this and then look at her work you'd have mm. fresh eyes I, I know Lisa you've you've written um making a case against reducing Frida's legacy to a flower crown and a and an embroidered blouse uh, but I have to say, I think that she she did that so strategically for herself that it's it's almost admissible, or, or, or permissible rather. Well, n- listen, I'm not go- I'm I'm not saying you can't wear any of those things. I I, I suppose what I yeah you know, I've got nothing against people wearing whatever they want, but 
It's the merchandising of it. If I get sent one more email from some naff brand saying, get the free day look, you know, and it's probably been made by five-year-olds. Or maybe it hasn't been made by five-year-olds. But the thing is, it's just crass. Leave it. She she can wear that look because she invented that look. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was some of it was taken from her heritage, but she put it through the Frida blender. And that's fine. I just don't want to see it reduced to a get the look. Do you want to see anything reduced to a get the look? Not really. Um, <laughs> I, I don't mind. If something's conceived in utter crassness, then I think I'm very happy to see it <laughs> buried in utter crassness. But um, no, hands off Frida. Hands off, Frida. I mean, at the preview, I did wonder how Frida would have felt about her clothes rather than her work being the focus of, a, of an exhibition. She t- did put so much effort into constructing her self-image, but would she disown that? Would she say, no, you're focusing on the wrong thing? Or would she say, yeah, I'm, gl- I'm glad you noticed what I did there? If only she were here to answer if that question. Only. Well, she might argue that she was her own greatest artwork. If you haven't booked your tickets to see Frida at the V&A, chances are it's because you've been tethered to your TV watching the World Cup or, more likely, dare I say, Love Island. Charlie, for the uninitiated, can you tell us what it's all about? Yep, here I am with the lowbrow. <laughs> Basically, the, the premise is that young singletons pair up into mostly heterosexual couples, and after eight weeks sharing beds in a villa in Mallorca, public vote for their favourite couple to win 50k. The Mediterranean waters are muddied somewhat by the arrival of new singletons at the villa and subsequent recouplings uh, and Big Brother-style evictions for third wheels. I mean, why has this become such a sensation? I must admit, this is my first year watching it. And it's one of the things... I mean, I hated Big Brother. I hated um, just the whole circus and feeling like people were really being used in that way. And that's what put me off watching Love Island. But then I thought, you know, it's one of those things that so many people are talking about. It's in every paper, in every magazine, in every column at the moment that I'm reading. Um, And I kind of felt a bit silly to be damning it before I'd ever watched it. So I've given it a go. It's very open-minded of you. Well, you know, I try. Um, And also I'm not up to that much in the evening. (laughs) But but actually, I'm really enjoying it. There's there's some lovely human moments in this. And while I I completely agree that it does kind of, it does use people to, to make good TV, but what I think separates this from the likes of Big Brother um, is they're not given very much to drink and I think that's really important so whereas kind of Big Brother used to get especially you know the later seasons and you'd read those news stories about you know wine bottles etc that was all alcohol fueled and they would just give them so much booze and they were really bored and all going a bit stir crazy in this confined space and I think it's admirable, actually, that the producers haven't gone down that route. And they've tried to, you know, you don't need to put extra drama in there because you've already got the element of romance, which is going to cause all the drama you need. Isn't it true that that kind of younger generation don't drink as much anyway now? So it would just feel kind of really wrong on so many levels. the sad fact is, Bethan, that you and I are the same age as some of those contestants. Really? Yep. Oh, well, so and maybe next year we could go and love Island. I seem to have missed the uh, non-drinking millennial memo. Um, well, I, I don't understand the show, but it has been on TV when I've been in the room. 
a few How times. Emily, was it your four-year-old twins put it on? Actually, it was my husband. He's kind of into it. Uh, and this being a fashion podcast, I can admit I'm fascinated by the swimwear. Like it really, you know, I've watched this and just wondered, like, does every swimsuit come with a built-in wedgie now? What is this going is on with their swimwear? This is what I found disturbing about it, the swimwear, because I, like you, I thought, Jesus, are they really back? Those buttock-bearing uh, swimsuits. I, I mm, That, for me, is the big block. I mean, they spend most of their time in swimwear, and they 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 look to me so much more comfortable and at ease in, like, bikinis with weird cheese grater you know, lacing than than in regular clothing. But I don't know. It just makes me long for like the purity of a of a deep V black Mayo. But then that's the joy because I'm watching it at home in like a cashmere sweatshirt and some <laughs> pajama bottoms. And I've cashmere. you know, I've, I've got a wash on and I'm probably eating some chocolate and you the joy is you're watching these people I always wondered what it would be to look like that, to have a body like that, kind of what life would be like and now I can see without ever having to uh, force myself into those kind of I mean what's the alternative I mean obviously it would be fabulous if it looked like a kind of live Slim Aaron's photo or something with all the women in like oh the ratings mm. would be so much lower don't you think <laughs> well exactly okay I'm going to come in there on the ratings because this is the thing I've, I've have you know I I don't really have a strong opinion either way about Love Island I have tried to watch it it's not my thing but so what but this idea that we're all being coerced into feeling that we've got to watch it because everyone's watching it, two million people out of a population of 60 million. OK, take away the children. It's after the watershed. But, you know, that is not everybody. And yes, every columnist is writing about it. Why? Because they feel if they don't, they'll look old or they'll, have, you know, they're not tuning into the zeitgeist. So it's yet another of those chimeras that we're creating. I mean... It's not not everybody's watching it. Not everybody's talking about it. I'm fine with it being on TV. It's great. It's giving some people pleasure. But this idea that we've all got to watch it, otherwise we'll be out of a big national conversation is is just hype. And that annoys me. I mean, I I, I do feel that there's a lot of like cultural consumption is, is sort of panic driven. Let's return for a moment to the fashion, because something that that I read about this is that that the fashion is actually sponsored by um, kind of a millennial e-tailer. Is that right? Is misguided behind a lot of the looks for the, the dates? Uh, surprise me. I think I've read that they do, I think they do certain certain days of the, you know, of the filming, maybe the big evictions or something like that. I would be really interested interested to find out, you know, what kind of selling power Love Island has. Like, do they sell out those little kind of shredded lace cohorts that it looks impossible for anyone except those well, girls exactly. to wear. It's all the pieces that we would see on a, on a sale and go, God, why did they even make that? <laughs> <laughs> it's not for us. It's, uh, But I think it's got a huge selling power. I think we, we actually did a piece last year um, about the, um, you know, I don't know, upticks in the searches for yellow swimming costumes and all that kind of thing or leopard print after someone had worn it on Love Island. I mean, it's a real thing. These are the people. These are kind of influencers in their own interesting way. Well, also so. they appeal to a fast fashion shopper because they're fast fashion shoppers themselves. You never see these girls wear the same things twice. Not even the same swimsuit. Um, you know, and some of them are in there for eight weeks, but you don't see them repeat anything. They've got a huge 
arsenal of kind of mini dresses and it is kind of really statement stuff as well. You know, I saw kind of a, a Twitter argument going on. When did the kind of rule of either tits or legs die? Because on Love <laughs> Island it is tits and legs and a whole lot of and everything dress. else. From high to low and back again, everyone, it's Royal Ascot time. The first day of the annual Racing Spectacular saw the Queen attend with the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, Princess Beatrice and Princess Eugenie. Although we hear there are horses, the event is all about hats, and it's worth an awful lot more than prize money. Bethan, talk us through it. Yes, the um, the Ascot fashion effect is real. Um, so there was some research done a couple of years ago which, which um, said that Ascot is worth £33 million um, fashion-wise to the economy. Um, but I would wage a bet that that it's, you know, kind of astronomically beyond that even now. Um, Fennec have told me that they've had their best year yet for occasion wear and hats, um, especially in the run-up uh, to Ascot. And um, Oliver Brown, which is a menswear outfitters, um, has taken a million pounds in Ascot spending. Mm. Um which is just phenomenal. And I mean, you can kind of do the maths yourself. I think there's 13,500 people in the royal enclosure each day. Let's imagine each of them is spending an average of £200 even, which is probably not that much considering some of them spend £7,000. That's like millions. Well, and there's two other enclosures as well. Well, yeah, three other enclosures. Three other enclosures. Yeah. And also I think there's a huge halo effect in that I think people look at those pictures or, you know, for, for months. And in fact, if you're going to a, a wedding or some sort of posh do, you might just hashtag ask it. And then you see hats and you think, oh, actually, I wouldn't mind wearing a hat. I think the British millinery industry would be a tenth of its size without Ascot. Yeah, absolutely. They've um, Some departments still say that they wouldn't have a hats department if it wasn't for Ascot. So... I mean, we all we all kind of, you know, really look forward to looking at those. I don't know. It, it's so on such a line, isn't it? Those those um, pictures that you see and of those people, you know, in these insanely ostentatious. Yes, but they're they're, they're, the rare, they're, they're, rare they're, they're 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 the sort of when you get there. Yeah, they're the sort of um, the show off. Yeah, but they're almost like show pony. They're mm. they're there to sell something yeah. usually. It is fantastic people yeah. watching. If you can amazing. get one of the very few tables kind of around the champagne tent in that mm. grassy bit of the royal enclosure, fantastic. You needn't move. You needn't watch a horse. Yeah. <laughs> horses. Um, also, don't you feel there? that after quite a long time of being maybe it's f- a little bit naff or ridiculous... Ascot's become quite fashionable again. And I don't know whether it's the Meghan Markle slash um, Duchess of Cambridge effect, but that way of dressing, you used to feel if you had to go to Ascot, when I was first at the Telegraph and I would get packed off there um, as a sort of work thing, I I almost would feel as though I was wearing fancy dress because it was so different from what was going on in fashion. But now fashion and Ascot, they've kind of, there's this a Venn diagram where they're, they're sort of meeting. And um, we well, saw that at the royal wedding as well in, in May. All those beautiful floral long dresses and, and you just stick a little hat on with that and you're sort of, you're, you're ready to go. And that's, that's apart from the hat, that's a, that's a fashion look. Actually, there were loads of hats at the shows. Of, uh, there were head coverings of every kind, including more traditional hats. I mean, I know in, in the US, 
hat wearing isn't such a big thing. Right. It sort of it sort of feels like you said like I'm in English national costume and I know I'm sitting in a room with Ascot veterans. I'm about to go for the first time this week. What does a first timer need to know to not feel like Julia Roberts? At the polo and well, I think Beverly it might Hills be nice to feel like Julia Roberts. <laughs> I, would, I would say don't take one of those frilled umbrellas. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone um, carrying an Eliza Dean yeah, little frilled yes. umbrella? No, umbrella. no bursting okay. into song. And I can't remember the song that they sang at, uh, in that film at the, at, when they were at the, the races. But get me to the church on time, maybe. No, don't. Don't do that. Um, I shall try. I think... Also, I know this is a weather forecast. Weather forecast. Because it can, it can be cool. And mm. it's boring if you're cold. Um, so think about your top layer. And comfortable shoes. It's also really boring if your feet hurt because there's not that many places to sit down unless you're kind of doing one of the big tabled lunches. Mm. Most of the time you're milling around um, and you don't want to be one of those women because you can't get a taxi for love nor money when you come out as well because they've closed off the whole road. Right. So then you'll have to either walk to the station or you know wherever you're getting to. Definitely. I think as well... If, if you kind of get dressed in the morning and you're a bit like, oh, is this a bit much? It's not. No, exactly. Go and throw yourself into it or don't go. But I, I know I've seen I've seen part of your outfit, Emily. You're going to be absolutely fine. I'll show you the rest of it. I have pictures. <laughs> um, I mean, my outfit options board. are a bit limited <laughs> given that it, it's, you know, whatever I can fit into right now as opposed to, you know, any kind of nipped in little little number but um we'll report back and let you know how the whole hat wearing thing goes i mean just a tip as well if anybody is um going to any sort of event where they need a a hat i went to a department store last week to get my ascot outfit and they specialize in the whole ascot thing event dressing and so i was able to take my dress from the dress department which was next door to the hat department and it was so helpful is so much easier than trying to do the whole thing separately or from memory. Oh, I think my dress was that shade of blue. You take your dress along in there and they they put me in a a colour that I hadn't even envisaged for the hat. And actually it looks so great. And I think you really ideally if you do the if you're really being serious about this, then you sort of get the whole outfit. Uh, and piece it together as you go along, not when you get home and think, oh God, it doesn't really go, but never mind. Because you know, I, I was just listening to a, an interview, a transcription of um, an interview I did with an etiquette specialist the other day. And, you know, the whole thing about these dress codes is they are actually done not to inconvenience you, as I used to think, <laughs> but to make the event seem more special. And if you if you kick against that, then you're kicking against the whole event. So why go? And that that's what everyone I spoke to for my piece said as well, is that you know, dress codes are mostly dead now. You know, you can wear trainers to work. You know, you can make anything work for anything, pretty much. But, you know, when there is a dress code, people actually love they that do now. Love it. Because also, the other thing she said to me was, you know, we were talking about dress codes in general during the season. She was saying at Glyndebourne, that black tie dress code, which is optional, but it was originally um, introduced as a mark of respect for the performers who were all in black tie. And if you think about it in that way as a sort of good manners appreciation, it's actually rather lovely because it's very easy to roll your eyes at all these sort of so-called posh people going along to events in top hats or whatever. Well, if you don't like it, don't go. That's fine. But, you know, if you go, you, you just have to get into the spirit. 
If you'd like to know more about Royal Ascot or the Duchess of Sussex's latest Givenchy Couture Ensemble, then you know where to look. Visit telegraph.co.uk forward slash fashion and please email any feedback and questions to unzipped at telegraph.co.uk. We've been waiting ever so patiently to talk about Ocean's 8. The film stars Sandra Bullock, Kate Blanchett, Anne Hathaway, Rihanna, Helena Bonham Carter, and other illustrious women who play a motley crew of con artists with their eyes on a staggering diamond necklace. Everything that you'll read about this film will call it a heist movie, but we know the truth, and that is, this is a girl power fashion movie of a sort we haven't seen for some time. For so many reasons. Reason number one, the pivotal heist scene is set where? At the Met Gala. Number two, they worked with Cartier. Number three, Anna Wintour makes a cameo in which she makes fun of herself because she's watching tennis. And four, one of the main characters is a fashion designer. Finally, five, Rihanna. Bethan, you've seen it. What does this film get right? Um, It gets a lot of things right, I think, which will be contrary to a lot of the reviews. Any narrative sagginess is absolutely made up for in incredible costumes and really uplifting storylines and I think this is one of obviously this is a a criminal heist film I was going to say aren't they all crooks <laughs> yes but do you know well yeah they're smart crooks they're they smart look great. and I I actually think that you know fashion can really not come out well from films I often think you know it it's that whole kind of devil wears prada you know it's a bitchy shallow horrid industry and I think maybe this shows, you know, the craftsmanship, the the inner workings and intricacies, and in quite in quite a nice way. The politics. I mean, one Absolutely. of the one of the main plot movers has to do with um, what's her name? Someone Kluger. Um, Daphne. Daph- Kluger. Thank you, Daphne Kluger. <laughs> she can't. She's the host of the Met Gala, and she gets wind that her that her society rival might wear a gown by a certain designer. And so, of course, she gets that designer to dress her instead. And we see then the designer kind of having to um, delicately massage her ego as, as she sort of talks about how beautiful her neck is and how incredible she's going to look. And, I mean, these are totally things that you can imagine actually happen behind the scenes. Just an average day in the Telegraph office. No? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I have to object to the use of the word sagginess having anything to do with Kate Blanchett's, like, pin-sharp wardrobe of, oh, so of cool. menswear-inspired suiting. I mean, she has these deep Vs. She has these, like, slim-cut, you know, Dior Alm-style jackets and trousers. And just every time she comes on screen, I just I just think that she's in a San Laurent ad, basically. It was all inspired by um, old photos of Keith Richards, apparently, and oh, Debbie Harry. Makes perfect sense. Mm. I was really glad to... I read, actually, that the opening weekend took more than any of the other Ocean's films. Wow. Um, and I was really glad to read that because I think I'm always a bit nervous when you hear of an all-female kind of... I know it's not a remake, but, you know, to that's a, such a male franchise. And then to be like, oh, we'll just throw in a token women's film rather than cast films with a that's bit more diversity. Kind of, that is kind of what I feel, though. They're sti- they are still doing it, aren't they? They'll do this film and they think, oh, we've done the women now well, for a like bit. it's like female Ghostbusters. Exactly. Yes. And it's, do we need an all-female Ghostbusters or should we just make films with women and men? <laughs> in in lead just roles. being characters I mean, together. Mm-hmm. If a woman is talking about a man in in dialogue, then she's not kind of really a lead character. If she never talks about anything but but a man or the Bechdel test, has. exactly. I, and I, I kind of think the solution to that isn't just to take men out of films completely and make them all about women. 
Is it? Well, there are men in this film, um, although they're they're definitely peripheral figures. The the only quasi love interest is is a cad who they ultimately set up for part of the crime. But I, I did love in the film when um, the reason that Sandra Bullock as Debbie Ocean gives for assembling an all female crew of of criminals is people notice men, women are invisible. I'm sorry, Rihanna in that red <laughs> off the shoulder Zach posing it's gown. Hollywood. It was. I mean, if she's invisible, then like people need a new prescription because <laughs> it was just. That's after the crime, though. That's true. That's <laughs> afterwards. But I mean, on what you were saying, Charlie, like Kate Blanchett actually addressed this. She did an interview on Sky News where she said that there's this unnatural pressure on a film like this, which has all women on the poster, and you go, "Please God, do well," because if it doesn't, mm, it's mm. going to reinforce the falsehood that these films don't do well and no one wants to see them, which is untrue. So it's a, it's a heavy weight for a frothy film to carry. I do think it's nice as well that this has thrown up a few issues about body image um, in them kind of doing the press tour and Anne Hathaway spoke about uh, when they started filming, she just had her baby and she felt like she was a bigger size than she usually was. Um, and nothing wrong with that, but she was aware of it kind of going into filming. And... Everyone kind of complimented her and Rihanna said her ass looked great. And or I think Rihanna said she had an ass like her. And and she kind of then I felt... freaked out. <laughs> but that, that was very positive. And there's this whole conversation about Rihanna's body at the moment. And mm. she's kind of said, yeah, I have a body that, that changes size. And I just dress for what looks good at the moment. And actually, those are really rare things to hear. You hear about actresses kind of gaining weight for a role and then trying to get back down again. And it's quite refreshing. Well, and can I just say, Anne Hathaway has never looked better. She looked bodacious. Like her wardrobe <laughs> just consisted almost exclusively of sort of bardo neckline, you know, V-neck dresses that show her newfound curves, shall we say. They featured prominently in many, many scenes. And I loved her in this. I don't love her in everything, but she just leaned into the divaness of the role and looked like she was having a great time. I mean, I think it's interesting also that somebody in the film industry was saying to me the other day that people in the UK just don't go to watch movies. And, you know, we're all watching Netflix. And um, I totally agree with this, but we don't want this sort of just to be ghettoization of women. And OK, we've done our quota for the year. But I think they, they have created an event movie that you want to go and see in the cinema. You're not if you want to see this film, you're not just going to wait for it to come out on TV. Um, so I, I think that that's quite 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 good and and it's great that it's done so well already um also this there is one thing i mean i find this i'm maybe it's just my friends but if we all go out for dinner with our male partners we often like 10 minutes in the women will all go and sit at one end of the table it's just so much more interesting <laughs> talking to the other women i can see this being a real girl gang movie where groups of of men and women will go out and you know the men will say we're going to Jurassic whatever. Yeah. The women will say, we're going to Ocean's 8. And, oh, man, if we'll this could be Jurassic We'll meet you for Doritos 8, after. Be... Yeah, exactly. I can, I can offer an immediate solution to uh, cinemas not, not being very well attended here. Sell better wine. Well, the everyman. Exactly. I... That's why I go to, you know, screen on the green. But uh... outside of a London bubble, terrible wine in cinemas. Come on, people. So my first job was at, um, at a movie theater in the States. And I still don't know why we don't have melted butter on popcorn here. I mean, it just makes the world a better place. <laughs> have you seen the popcorn here? It wouldn't melt because it's all cold and stale. I know, but like hot buttered popcorn is one of the joys of, of going to America and especially Go if you to put in some peanut m and 
and and and focaccia and a little like you know <laughs> they do little platters it's delicious <laughs> and, and, and a little anemic sofa <laughs> i know but i don't want a sofa i want like a big vat of hot buttered popcorn you have to like wipe your hands on you know oh, your you page shirt girl out of america <laughs> honestly do you know what i'm happy with pick and mix so. <laughs> have you seen oceans eight did it make you want to buy a slim cut suit or take up pickpocketing let us know your thoughts by emailing us at unzipped at telegraph.co.uk And of course, visit telegraph.co.uk slash fashion for more on the film. Guys, it's about that time. So let's go around and say what everyone is excited about this week. Charlie, what about you? I've got two this week. And shockingly, neither of them is TV. Or food. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) One is food, yes. Okay. So firstly, there's a new cookbook out. So I used to live in Clapton in East London. And right around the corner from me was this amazing jam shop called the London Borough of Jam. And it's fantastic and this woman Lily O'Brien makes all her own jams and she opened the shop at the weekend to sell them Um, and she's been doing this for years and she's got her first cookbook out uh, and it's called Five Seasons of Jam Speciality is it all stores? jam? It's all jam. Don't pull that. I face. mean, she used How to. How many jams can you make? Do Emily, you really need a whole. So cookbook? many jams, <laughs> Emily. I used to go in there because she she'd what make her own um, jams, donuts there, and fill them yeah, with but, the jam. Uh, once you've oh, done the donut good. and the jam on toast and scones, then what? Just a spoon, if you me. <laughs> but she makes these, you know, rhubarb and cardamom, oh, and I'm there. Just green gauge plum and fennel pollen. So green gauge is a, is a fruit that I actually thought that my mother-in-law made up to like prank me. No, no uh, one knows what a green cage it, no, is. No, but they're real, and she grows them, and she makes jam out of them. And and I really thought for the longest is time it that it was like from this. a gooseberry. A gooseberry is also made up. Yeah, <laughs> I, think, I think a green cage is is bigger. It's kind of like a yeah. It's yeah. more like more like a plum. Oh. So when I'm not making jam, though, Matrix Potter fruits. Tomorrow, I'm actually going to a life drawing class um, with Alexa Co. So I. I spoke about her actually on this podcast. Uh, she's this great young artist um, who is sold via this website called Partnership Editions, which is now in Liberty. Um, and she's doing a life drawing class tomorrow afternoon that I'm going to. And Partnership Editions do actually set these up and you can buy tickets on their website. <gasps> is that the Le, the Le Girls, Le Boys Exactly. Event? So the oh, one tomorrow I'm so going cool. with a brand that we've actually covered in the in the paper. Mm. Um, but I'm really excited. I haven't done live drawing since I was at art that school. That sounds fabulous. Can you do stick drawings, do you think? I mean, I was actually terrible at drawing. Shocking at, at life drawing, but you never know. Maybe I'll have loosened up a bit. Yeah. Less yes, self-conscious. Yes. In my well, if you take some good wine. <laughs> Lisa, what are, what are you excited about this week? Well, in about two hours, I'm going to the Rolling Stones. <gasps> I'm a stone scoopy. That, I'm very excited about that. I, and, and just reading below, you know, all the below the line comments, which is great because you sort of think, oh, my God, the Rolling Stones again, really, I should branch out. But the reviews and the, and all the below the line comments from people who've been have just been really great. I think it's so fantastic that they haven't. They're really still on it musically. Mixed voice is still amazing, and the only thing I've read bad reviews on is the clothes. But frankly, twas ever thus. Mix got terrible taste, and um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing those yeah, terrible clothes. Flamboyant taste. And, and yeah, but there's flamboyant and there's schmamboyant. Maybe you need to go backstage and help them out, Lisa. I've got no desire on the stones, weirdly, in that sense. <laughs> I love the music. I interviewed Keith Richards once, and it was a total disaster. Oh, no. I was ill-prepared, and he was... Keith it Richards. was. Let's put it this way. His PR said to me, it was after 6 p.m., you know, no, you can't, can't do Keith <laughs> after 6 p.m. I just uh, thought he'd just be getting going. Then. He was horrible to me, but I still love them because they are just the greatest band ever. 
Uh, and my other excitement is um, last night I went to a dinner for the Modest website and a poet came on. And um, sadly, I can't remember her name or anything about her other than her poetry was quite seize you by the throat. And Roland Murray was sitting next to me and he said, poetry is the next thing, Lisa, didn't you know? And I thought, mm, I bet it probably is. Oh, in- it, Instagram poets mm, are huge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I'm so behind the curve on that. So, yeah, I'm booking a poet for my next uh, my next hen night. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be a big hit. <laughs> Bethan, what about you? Um, so mine is TV. The Staircase. Has Never anyone heard, heard about this? Nice. So it's the new... Got a thumbs up from producer Charlie over there. <laughs> so I've seen two episodes so far. Um, it's, a, it's a case of a woman who um, called Kathleen Peterson who appears to have perhaps fallen down some stairs. Um, and or it's all she? about whether she did or did not fall down the stairs. And her um, the prime suspect, if, it, if she did not in fact fall down the stairs, is her husband Michael and lots of... Skeletons are coming out of his closet and um, I am absolutely enthralled and would like to to be binge watching it right now. Mm. Well, I'm sorry to keep you. you <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I'm excited about my Ascot hat. How is that pronunciation, everyone? Ascot, Ascot, Ascot. But speaking of skeletons coming out of the closet, what I'm really excited about is Coco. Did anyone see this when it was in cinemas? No. This, Hang on. Disney Pixar, right? Yes, it's, it's the Pixar movie about... A Boy's Journey to the Land of the Dead. Obviously, I thought you meant the film about Chanel. Well, I mean, you would, <laughs> wouldn't you, given given the setting and the context. But no, it's not a Chanel film. Um, I don't even know why I knew. I, have, I, don't, have, I don't have children. <laughs> well, no, the, the thing is, it is a kid's movie, but it's quite intense. I wouldn't show it to my four-and-a-half-year-olds. Um, it's about a boy's journey to the Land of the Dead in search of his ancestors on Dia de los Muertos. And it is so beautiful, and oh. it is so earnest. It's... It has, um, I have to say, I watched it through tears and I haven't been able to stop thinking about oh. it since. And I'm pleased to find that I wasn't, uh, that I'm not alone in this. I watched it over the weekend and then yesterday came across a story that the New Yorker's Gia Tolentino, whose writing I absolutely adore, she wrote about Coco as a millennial sensation and she suggested that part of the appeal is the idea of a world that is, quote, animated by sweetness and a little something deeper. So to read a little bit of her story, She says, Coco is a movie about borders more than anything. The beauty in their porousness, the absolute pain produced when a border locks you away from your family. The conflict in the story comes from not being able to cross over. The resolution is that love pulls you through to the other side. The thesis of the movie is that families belong together. That's like Paddington 2, <laughs> which I watched last week on a plane and I watched through a haze of tears. And obviously I felt ridiculous, but I read somewhere that you cry more easily at 35,000 feet. Well, anyway, who knew? I mean, <laughs> tears are cathartic. But I, I highly recommend Paddington as your chaser to Coco. I've heard that. I've heard that Paddington is, you know, surprisingly good. But it's also so watch about, Paddington. It's also about being kind and sweet and love conquering and being nice to immigrants and 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 families. Well, I think with everything that's going on in America at the moment, with exactly. all those families yes. being divided, yeah. it's something that needs to be addressed. I mean. Very Interesting timely. to think it that is. this kind of Disney film might be doing that. It is. And also a uh, great primer before you go to the Frida exhibition because she is she's actually a character. <laughs> she's a character in the film who is like the celebrity of the of the underworld. You know, people actually dress up as her to try to get into exclusive parties and things like that. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> so Do you know, I think I'm going to have to go against my own dicta and dress as Frida. <laughs> for Ascot, why not? <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for listening, everybody. Check back next week for another episode of Fashion Unzipped.